This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's great to be with you on this December 3rd, 2022, for our 112th consecutive show dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. As predicted, the Thanksgiving holiday has resulted in a rise in the numbers of positivity here in Connecticut, uh, where we have gone from what was last week a 7% positivity to now what is a 9% COVID positivity based on the PCR test that you typically get at a hospital. So we know that this is a low number than expected. But, you know, we we anticipated this, right? Because people are getting together more and more. People are not wearing masks. And we're starting to see a rise. But where we're seeing a big rise is in flu, influenza. Uh, we have over 12,000 cases already documented this year. But in the last week, we have over 3,000 cases uh, in the United States uh, documented. Uh, 153 of those were, I'm sorry, over 3,000 cases in Connecticut, and 153 of those were hospitalized. So the number of cases we've seen of influenza, now this is documented influenza. That means people who went to a walk-in center or an emergency room, and actually had testing and documented the influenza. So we've seen just in those cases, the numbers have doubled since Thanksgiving. And that is despite having an effective flu vaccine out there. So what does it tell us? It tells us that when wearing a mask, you could protect yourself, not just against COVID, but the flu. But the way to keep yourself out of the hospital is with the vaccine, whether it be the flu vaccine or the COVID vaccine. And we've seen a lot more of it. Actually, we've seen a lot of GI symptoms. I know a lot of people have uh, told me and people I've met uh, where they've developed gastrointestinal symptoms in what has been more of a 24-hour bug um, that seems to be going around more among young people. So a lot of these family gatherings involve Uh, young children who go to school and in those locations pick up a virus of some type. This has been similar uh, since I was young. And whenever you gather in a large place and you're not protected, you're going to get ill. Now, that's an interesting thing. So people think that because I got the vaccine, I'm I'm not going to get sick. And It's really a misnomer, especially with respect to COVID. In the second uh, segment of our show, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, COVID vaccine technology and how that's changing. But basically, the way the vaccine and the booster work now, basically, the only clear message is, you know, get vaccinated because it, it avoids serious illness. 
Does it avoid getting it? It does to some extent. But what it does is it really boosts your immune system to the point where you can limit the symptoms and avoid those hospitalizations. Uh, we did have one death in the last week from influenza here in the state of Connecticut. So it's important that you talk about this. I mean, when you're at the dinner table, have the conversation about getting people. I talk to all my patients about this. And it's not a confrontational discussion. With many people, it's just that they haven't gotten around to doing it. They don't typically get sick. I hear that a lot. Uh, you know, well, I don't usually get sick from the flu. But they have to understand that by getting the flu, they're also not doing it just for themselves. You're doing it for your community so we can keep these numbers down. And as these vaccines evolve and the treatments evolve, we're going to see more and more need for participation as a community. This day in medicine, December 3rd, 1967, well, 55 years ago, Dr. Christian Barnard performed the first successful heart transplant in Cape Town, South Africa. And the patient was Denise Dorvali. She was a 25-year-old victim of a motor vehicle accident. And her family and she were generous in the sense that they donated her heart. Now, you got to imagine... Think back, this is 1967. Dr. Barnard transferred her heart into a fellow named Louis Washkansky, who was dying of chronic heart failure. Dr. Barnard, you might say, well, how did he get to this? I mean, here he is in Cape Town, South Africa. Well, Dr. Barnard was trained as a cardiac surgeon here in the United States. And his work was based on a lot of the work done in the 1950s by Dr. Norman Shumway. Dr. Shumway, a famous cardiac surgeon here in the United States, was doing heart transplants in dogs and working with that technique. Dr. Barnard used that technique for the first time in a human. Mr. Washansky died 18 days later. And it's very interesting that at how this has evolved because really heart transplants uh, have become somewhat routine in many respects. Uh, worldwide, there are 3,500 heart transplants performed every year. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that uh, when looking at statistics, now the best statistics I, I looked at really were from 2009. Um, but uh, what was interesting was the longevity. Don't forget now, Mr. Warshansky lived only 18 days. Um, whereas now, in, in 2009 at least, um, the one-year survival in the United States was 88% for men and 77% for women. Uh, that's a huge success rate. Three-year survival, 79% for men, 77 again for women. But the five-year survival for someone who has had a heart transplant is 73% for men and 67% for women. And this is really thanks to the research done in how you can suppress rejection of the organ, right? You're taking a vital organ from one human being that has a specific genetic makeup and putting it into another human being with a different genetic makeup. So it really 
begs the issue of organ rejection because your body looks at that like a splinter or some other foreign body that was put into your system. So it's really the medications that result in immunosuppression that that really help this. On average, a procedure costs between seven hundred fifty and eight hundred thousand uh, is the cost over time between uh, the drugs and the actual heart transplantation. But uh, in the United States, and I think worldwide, actually, uh, heart transplant is the third most common transplantation to perform outside of liver and kidney. I always learn something from patients. And I spoke to a patient this week. It was a very interesting uh, gentleman because um, he came into the office and he was wearing a hat that said Mayo Clinic on it. So I said, geez, an interesting hat. Uh, you know, uh, are you playing for their team or what, what did you do at the Mayo Clinic? And here's what was interesting. Uh, his daughter needed uh, a liver and kidney transplant. And she was a patient here in Connecticut at uh, Yale, actually. And the folks at Yale said that sh they should go to Jacksonville, Florida because the number of transplants performed there because of available donors was so much greater than it was here in Connecticut. And it's interesting. I haven't drilled down as to why that is. Um, is it because of more deaths? Uh, I haven't. But whatever it is, there are a lot more organs available uh, for patients and he was saying that they do about 60 transplants a month at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. So it was an interesting tidbit that I picked up about organ transplantation. We're going to take a short break, but just so you all know, the email for me if you have questions is info at alessimd.com. We had some trouble with uh, the email uh, in the last couple of weeks, so I thank the people who hung in with it and actually went through the problem with the certificate, but it's all up and running now. So if you have a question for me, either live while I'm on the air or during the week, I'm happy to address your question. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to discuss a little bit more about COVID vaccine technology and where are we going with COVID vaccine technology. And we're going to talk a little bit about mass shootings now that the anniversary, the 10th anniversary of the Sandy Hook tragedy is coming up. Also, my guest in the second half of today's program is going to be Dr. Ted Iannaccio. Dr. Iannaccio uh, is a psychiatrist and he is the chair of the Department of Behavioral Health at Trinity Health of New England. We're going to be talking about mental health awareness during the holiday season. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And I thought it was worthwhile touching on COVID vaccine technology and, and where we are. Uh, we all were part of Operation Warp Speed, right? And um, the idea was to really devote our resources and both intellectual and financial, to developing a vaccine against the COVID virus. And we did so. We were successful. 
but unfortunately that funding is drying up and another five billion dollars is needed if we're going to continue to pursue that so i thought it was worthwhile to really investigate a little bit more about the vaccine and what that investment would bring us so the big issue here is the risk who is at risk of dying at this point in time now that we have an effective vaccine many people have some level of immunity either from having had the virus or from being vaccinated so the numbers have gone down of people who are dying so the real risk is to people who have risk factors like age over 65 respiratory or cardiac conditions and those who are immunosuppressed just as we recently discussed a little few minutes ago people who had a transplant we're seeing more and more of those folks and they are immunosuppressed their immune system has to be suppressed so that it does not reject organs that leaves them more susceptible to infection so with that we all heard a lot about the monoclonal antibodies um, these all received uh, emergency use authorizations early on in the uh, pandemic. And in fact, one of the more famous ones was the Regeneron monoclonal antibodies that the former president got before they were available to anyone else. Uh, and they were very effective. But it's just what it says. It's monoclonal antibody. It is specific to a particular form of the virus, a specific antigen. So to be quite frank, those monoclonal antibodies are useless now. They have no effect because the virus has been able to mutate and stay ahead. We have Paxlovid, which has been effective for people, again, those who are not vaccinated and those who are at risk. Now, we've all heard about the Paxlovid rebound. The president got it and uh, many people, I think Dr. Fauci had it, and, and quite honestly, I had it. Uh, and, you know, but was it worth the risk? And the real issue is we need to do more research on Paxlovid because what we believe is that we were only partially treated, that it, sh it was effective. It certainly kept me out of the emergency room and out of uh, the hospital. But by the same token, do we need a longer course of it in those vulnerable populations and the next level of vaccine is what we should be investing in the five billion dollars need to get us to what would be a pan coronavirus vaccine so vaccine where we're not guessing every year what the flu is going to be what the COVID is going to be uh, and there is a lot of work being done on that. The other issue is the nasal vaccines. And I still think we're a bit of ways away on that. But basically what you want to accomplish with a nasal vaccine is mucosal immunity. It's kind of like the holy grail of respiratory viruses because when you think of it with a mucosal barrier, you can block all types of nasal viruses so it, it's somewhat futuristic and i think we're a ways away but we can get there with the proper investment you know and we've learned a lot uh, with this vaccine uh, with the whole virus because suddenly now 
we share data a lot more readily with other countries. And I think that that's where it's not just an American thing anymore. It's really a global battle because it affects all of us living on this planet. One recent research that I heard about has been something called interferon lambda. Interferon lambda um, resulted in a small study in a 50% reduction in hospitalization. Now, interferon doesn't work to just attack a specific virus. What it does is it is a, a boost to your immune system. So it looks, it, it'll attack a variant at a more core source of the virus. So it's not specific to a virus, but this augmentation of your own immune response toward a virus would be crucial. And that is available. And there are studies being done. I think we're going to hear more about it. And I'm certainly going to follow that because I think that that's where the $5 billion is needed. So I support the investment wholeheartedly uh, if we're going to stay in the game. The last thing I want to do is have to go to a foreign country to get my vaccine. Uh, I think that that would, uh, that would just be an awful statement uh, for our country in general. As I mentioned before, this is the 10th anniversary next week of the Sandy Hook tragedy. And I don't, I don't need to go over the statistics with everyone who's listening here uh, because we're all familiar with it, right? There have been over 600 mass shootings in this country already defined as uh, where four or more people um, have been uh, injured or deceased. Most of these uh, have been with high-capacity rifles, long guns, uh, the AR-15, the most notable. But what are we doing about it? And in Oregon, they passed Measure 114. Uh, and basically, the research that's been done at Johns Hopkins really looks at two issues. One is magazine capacity of limiting it to fewer than 10 rounds, so fewer than 10 bullets, and permitted purchase laws. Now, these permitted purchase laws look at the background. You have to get a license, and you have to take a safety test. And the research has shown that with permitted purchase, you will see really a divergence of guns that are being used in crime. There's diminished gun violence, diminished mass shootings, homicide, and death by suicide by permitted laws. What's also interesting that permitted laws, permitted search are supported 75% by 75% of non-gun owners. You might say, well, okay, that's understandable. But 60% of all gun owners support permitted purchase. And that's the key. Because even people, no one's saying we're taking your guns away. You're not allowed to have guns. There's a Second Amendment. The good news here is that the model for these laws around the country is Connecticut. And we have done a phenomenal job in making sure people have proper permits. Much of this has come since the Sandy Hook massacre. But we need to do more. And we need to support these things. Because and, and the magazine capacity is, is a huge issue because 
Uh, with that, we have clearly seen uh, fewer incidents of mass shootings and fewer injuries. So we will continue to work on that, and those of us here in Connecticut will continue to lead the country in that regard. Next up, we're going to chat with my guest, Dr. Ted Iannaccio, and he is a psychiatrist and medical doctor specializing in psychiatry. 64% of individuals with mental illness felt that their symptoms worsened around the holidays, and 38% of all people surveyed said that stress increased during the holiday season. We're going to talk with an expert about that. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you this afternoon for the second half of our program. I've been looking forward to today's program because uh, my guest today is Dr. Ted Hianacho. Dr. Hianacho He's a medical doctor specializing in psychiatry. He's also chair of the Department of Behavioral Health at Trinity Health of New England Medical Group. And we really wanted to talk a little bit about this season and, and seasonal changes with respect to mental health. In reviewing his bio, I also realized that we have a mutual interest uh, in developing nations and global medicine and really the perceptions in other cultures of neurologic and psychiatric disease. But I guess that's a topic for another show. Ted, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. I appreciate, I appreciate the time. So uh, let's talk a little bit about now that we are into the holiday season, right, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. But what I find interesting is as a warm-up to the holiday season, we change our clocks. And regular listeners to this program know how much that I, I resent the fact that we keep changing clocks and impacting people's general health, uh, increase in stroke, increase in heart attack. But it has a mental health effect as well. Can you talk a little bit about the various time changes and their effect on mental health just as we get into the holiday season? Yeah, thank you, Tony. That's a very important topic for mental health, particularly, as you mentioned, this period of the year. So a couple of basic facts is that our body runs on what we call the circadian rhythm. That is our body's natural rhythm of how it functions, including our sleep. So any change in terms of hours of day, day or, uh, or night can disrupt that natural rhythm that we've all had over years. So I do agree with you that it's almost unnecessary, but it happens that you know, the clock changes sometimes in spring and sometimes in fall, and that can disrupt this natural flow, particularly the, the, night, the sleep night uh, flow for people. So I do think, uh, in general, most people can tolerate that change, but when people are also struggling with mental health issues like depression and anxiety, that can generally worsen the symptoms only because as you can imagine, sleep is fundamental to our well-being. And for those of us who struggle with depression and anxiety, that change in our usual rhythm of sleep, even by one hour, has been shown to impact on ability to sleep, ability to cope with anxiety, ability to get up and go for the day. And that can change the tone for, for weeks, for days and weeks on end. So I do think it's important to bear that in mind 
while we can't do anything right now to change the, the sort of change in, 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 in time and day, what we can do is anticipate that and understand that this could be a reason why we are feeling a little off, or our mood is a little cranky. And so trying to find ways to cope with that and catch up a couple of minutes of sleep, do things that help us relax, can be a way to support that. But I do agree with you. It does impact mental health. It does impact anxiety, particularly for those who are already prone to those uh, the mental health issues. So, I mean, we've advocated for just sticking with standard time, and we move through that. So I take it from a psychiatric standpoint, that's the way we should go, and, and we should advocate more for that. Um, I do agree. We should advocate more for that. And I, if I'm, I'm not an expert in this, but there has been some push at the legislative level to get the government to, to do some legislative uh, process to get this standby timing. I would definitely support that only because I do think definitely uh, there is some impact on mental health. Let's move on to seasonal affective disorder, right? We hear about SAD all the time. Can you uh, really talk to us a little bit about how that's defined and what that means to us? So a seasonal affective disorder, as you call it, SAD, which is a, an interesting acronym, right? So it's a type of depression that occurs seasonally. Uh, usually it occurs when the days are shorter when the nights are longer, which falls for us within the period of November, December, uh, January, or thereabouts. So for those who have this disorder, it's really a clinical entity that does manifest with you know, low mood, feeling uh, overwhelmed, feeling depressed, feeling low energy, almost the classic symptoms of depression. And so uh, just like we mentioned earlier, people who have seasonal affective disorder can be even more impacted by that change in daylight uh, savings time. So, but it, it is a clinical entity. It is something that is there. People have a seasonal affective disorder. It feels like our, the depression that we know about, and it definitely does affect people. So now we move into the holiday season, the season we consider between, I guess, Thanksgiving and, and New Year's. And mm-hmm. what what are some of... The, the things that kind of impact uh, making mental health disorders worse and, and mental health illness and stress. Um, you know, can we talk a little about some of those factors and maybe, uh, just maybe, we could avoid some of those during the season? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and the good news is that there is something we could do about it. Tony, um, so let's start with the seasonal affective disorder, actually, because it's a known sure. entity and it does happen for some people. Let me quickly say that there are some things that those who, who are prone to seasonal affective disorder can do during these holiday seasons, which happens to fall within this, uh, that, you know, longer nights. Uh, spending more time during the day outside as much as possible, as much as feasible, allowed, spending some time outside, getting as much light as possible before the day goes dark, uh, trying light, light therapy, which is there are some lamps that are available uh, over the counter that we call it the light boxes. There's actually a lot of data to show that they can be helpful for those who have seasonal affective disorder. And the other thing is just being physically active. This is generally good, but for those who have seasonal affective disorder, staying physically active, even though uh, the daylight is short, can help boost mood and improve the mood across the day. So that is specifically recommendations for those who have seasonal affective disorder around this time of year. In general, uh, mental health 
in addition to this uh, circadian rhythm change and uh, seasonal affective disorder, it is also a time of year that is happy for people. You get to meet families, you go to, you travel around, uh, you spend time with loved ones. However, it's also a time that is prone to a little bit more alcohol use because of the seasons and the festivities. Those of us, again, who struggle with substance use might find it more challenging because there are a lot more triggers, a lot of opportunities to relapse. And so one should be aware of that, not just for themselves, right? For those of us who have uh, substance use challenges, is just to be aware of that and prepare for it and, you know, practice saying no to family members and asking for, uh, you know, accommodations around, you know, drinking or, or substance use. And for those of us who are not necessarily struggling with substance use, but who we should be aware of that and not, uh, I, I don't use the word first, but not sort of insist on people having a drink. If someone says, oh, thank you very much, I, I'm going to pass, it's good to understand that and let that pass. For those, you know, just to make sure that you're not contributing to, you know, somebody relapsing, right? So that's just something that I think around the holidays that most of us should be aware of. Practicing how to say no, practicing how to ask for accommodations around substances and alcohol, but also those of us being aware that we don't want to make people, you know, trigger people or make people more likely to relapse. And then the other thing to think about the holidays, Tony, is even though it is a happy occasion uh, for, for a lot of us, sometimes it could be a challenging environment as well because of interpersonal relationship with friends and family. Uh, particularly around this time, or around this time in our country, where there's a lot of uh, issues with COVID, some people don't believe there's COVID, some people believe there's COVID, and so wearing masks and not wearing masks in large gatherings indoors, mm. uh, the political divisions at times when those things can crop up in family conversations. So just being aware and having some guardrails around discussion with family and friends, and knowing when to walk away from you know, sort of contentious uh, debate and discussion can help a lot with mental well-being so that we don't get, uh, we don't go off and um, become more more stressed out than we, we need to be, right? So those are some of the things that can happen around the holiday period. Also, uh, during the holiday period, that's when people, you know, those who have lost loved ones over the, across the year, uh, during the holidays, it could be a, a time of acute remembrance of, oh, my God, this, this person that I... I yeah, you know, I was going to bring that up. Person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it, 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 it's, it's something to be aware of and be sensitive to and support one another around that as well. How do we do that? I mean, how do you go about that, that support? You know, it's often an uncomfortable feeling, right, uh, when mm -hmm. you're with someone and, you know, this is supposed to be such a joyous time, but... You're also remembering the people who, especially after COVID, right? Yeah. You're remembering the people who are not sitting around the table. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you, you don't want to bring it up, but by the same token, you know it's kind of in the room. How do you go about that? That's a, that is, Tony, that's a very good point. And I think those of us who, who study this and, you know, worked with, this, with people around loss and grief, I think the, the general pathway is to be sensitive about it and create time, even for a moment, to say, let us remember this and so person who was with us last day, but who is no longer here. I think that, that sort of moment of remembrance acknowledges the loss, 
right? Because you do want to acknowledge the loss and, and you know, uh, regard that memory, that, you know, elevate that memory to a place where everybody pays reverence to, to the person that was lost. And then after that, then move on with the, the celebration. Because I think it is better that way to, to afford that remembrance spend that moment of remembrance than to sweep it under the rug and pretend that everything is okay. No, people people are not okay. So I think overall, remembering that person or that loved one together in that moment and giving them a minute or two of respectful reflection can be a way to go. I like that. I think that's very important. Let's talk a little bit about COVID because it's a new factor now in dealing with the holidays, right? Yeah. Not everybody in an extended family is going to see it the same way, right? There are yeah. those people out there who think COVID doesn't exist. It's gone. The pandemic's over. We could all sneeze on each other or whatever they want to do. And there are those um, who try to avoid large gatherings, right? Because everybody wants to get back to having these large Christmas parties that I- invariably become super spreader events. So... Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that within a family where you want to get the family together, um, but by the same token, you know, be cautious? I mean, how do you how do you deal with that? Because there's the, again, it reflects on people's mental health. It does. It does. Tony, that's a very good point. Uh, sort of how do you navigate the, the, the potential risk and the potential sort of uh, disagreements around it? But let's let's say the, the clear and obvious fact, right, Tony? The pandemic, the, the COVID um, COVID infection is still in the community. There are still people struggling with COVID. The good news is that the vaccination is there, and I'm stating the the scientific facts here. Vaccination is helpful as much as your the recommended boosters and COVID vaccine boosters are there. For these holidays, I really want to add my voice to CDC and all the infectious disease experts and public health experts that we should all get the COVID boosters, the most recent COVID boosters, if we are eligible and qualified to get that. I mean, that is one clear fact that I do want to stress for all of us. And then the second thing is, for those who are hosting events, it's up to you to agree on how you're going to go about it, right? So are you going to ask people to, you know, make sure they're boosted before they come to your event? Are you going to give people option to well if you're not going to be boosted are you going to prefer to wear masks across the, the during the during the gathering making sure that if you're outdoors to give some ventilation uh making sure that if the place is not overcrowded how many people are you inviting uh spacing the distance where people are sitting these are all standard measures that are common sense prevention you know infection prevention measures that all of us can agree to as long as we do want to get together and have a good time during the holidays. And, uh, Tony, I do want to mention that, most importantly, we need to be sensitive to the fact that some of us have severe illnesses that we don't see, right? Some of us have uh, immune disorders that we don't necessarily see. They may not have shared with us. So we, at the very minimum, need to be protective of those who may have severe illnesses or immune conditions that make them most, more vulnerable to COVID. So I do think those are, these are the things to consider as you go. And you, you can all agree on, well, we're not going to argue about whether there's COVID or not. That could be a ground rule. Uh, I know that some of my friends have had to do that, at, particularly for recently at a wedding. And there was an agreement that, please, do not talk about COVID. Just do the 
do the uh, recommended vaccine boosters and all that. Uh, and, and so some of those guardrails around the discussion can be helpful depending on the setting, depending on the, on the environment, and depending on the people. But these are some of the recommendations, actually, that can, be, that can help us navigate uh, and that has actually helped us navigate the pandemic over the last two and a half years. Right. Good, good information there, for sure. Now, when we talk about raising awareness, what's interesting is when you mentioned, you know, remembering the deceased, and it almost takes a little bit of a spiritual aspect to entering into the holidays. Does that spiritual aspect help us with respect to exacerbation of mental health? In other words, uh, people who may have a stronger spiritual life than others, uh, are they in some ways less vulnerable to this work? this worsening of mental health uh, conditions? Uh, Tony, that's a very good point and a very good topic to raise. Um, overall, uh, the idea of having some spiritual belief, the idea of having some connection to a group of a group with shared spiritual beliefs is protective for mental health. The reason is because you do have, you do have uh, connections with people you can talk to. You do have uh, times people can talk when things are difficult, you do have sort of uh, hope for the future uh, around the spirituality. So spirituality is a good thing for mental health, particularly if it is something that goes with a, a social organization, connection to people, uh, having, having a sense of belonging uh, with other people, that is, very, that is particular for mental health. I do think spirituality also is not anti, uh, you know, I, I think some people wonder. Spirituality is not anti-mental health. Actually, spirituality and mental health do go well together. Data from the United States, and I, and I don't want to be super science maybe on, on us here, but data from the U.S. and around the world shows that most people who have mental health issues actually talk to their clergy first. They talk to their the, the pastors, they talk to their religious leaders before they talk to a medical practitioner. And that also shows that a lot of those uh, uh, clergy are able to provide basic support and counseling for for their for their you know uh, members. And when organized well, they can connect them to more serious, more more intense mental health interventions if needed. So spirituality, religion, and mental health can go well together. So. I guess, you know, one of the purposes for today's show is to really raise awareness uh, among everyone and among our listeners that, you know, someone who may have a mental health problem <clears throat> may have worsening during the season. What what can we do to raise awareness? And, and uh, you know, I, I think of things like checking in on someone um, who may be alone. Are those the right things to do? Can you give us some guidance with that regard? Yes, the, the, you are exactly right. So those are the right things to do. The most important thing, I think, at this time is to, at least COVID has actually shown us, we're talking about COVID, COVID has shown us that our social connection with each other is very important. And that was the biggest thing that we missed during COVID, that social connectedness. And so the benefit of social connection is that we can check in on each other, we can have conversations and I think encouraging people now to talk openly about when they are struggling emotionally, it is a good it is a good thing to talk about it with family members, with friends who who you trust and who support you. 
And as friends, when someone also raises concerns about mental health, it is good to listen to, to begin with, with empathy, no judgment, no immediate uh, magic solutions. Just being able to listen to someone when they're saying, I'm struggling, things are not going well, I don't feel too well. Listening to them and providing empathic you know, environment for them to talk about it is really, really important. And then the other thing to do this time in terms of raising awareness is to know that there is actually help. Um, sometimes we need the fact that a lot of people who have depression or anxiety, which are the commonest mental health issues in the country, actually get help. They, take, they talk to a therapist, they talk to a counselor, uh, they take medications, and they do well. So there is help. So sometimes it's not immediately available, but it is there. So one of the ways we can encourage each other is to say, well, you know, have you, have you talked to your primary care doctor? Have you talked to a counselor? Have you talked to someone who could give you some directions? So that is something we can do ourselves that doesn't cost money, uh, provide support for, uh, for those of us struggling with mental health issues. And then the other thing to mention right away is that um, they, this year, I think the federal government rolled out the 988 number, which is the, the suicide and crisis line, uh, life crisis number. And the number again is 988. And this is a number to call in case of any uh, suicide thoughts, any uh, emotional stress, mental health issues. And you call 988 number, you will get through to someone who you can talk to and who can provide guidance to seeking help. So that's definitely there. There's also the 211 number particularly during the holidays, the 211 number is also available in the state of Connecticut. Uh, you could call 211 for a range of things, including mental health issues, and you're connected to care. So 988 and 211. These are publicly available numbers that people can call specifically to talk to someone and to get help. That's so important. And I also want everyone to know if you'd like to reach uh, Dr. Iannaccio, you can re re reach him at 860 714 4,000 at Trinity Health of New England. Ted, thank you for your time today, and thanks for right. everything uh, you do for our patients and our community. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me. I appreciate your, your time. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to wrap up the show. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and it's been great to be with you this morning, and uh, I really want to thank my guest, Dr. Teddy Anacho, for coming on and really discussing such an important topic. Um, and uh, as we move through this holiday season, we'll try to raise uh, more awareness to make it more pleasant uh, for everyone. Many thanks to our studio producer today. Joey Burgoyne's been on the board for us today. Uh, and has done a phenomenal job as always. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. In the coming weeks, we're going to be talking more about a lot of these topics um, that are relevant to really make our holiday safe. And then we're going to hit the new year running uh, with a lot of uh, things that we really want to accomplish. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast by downloading it at odyssey.com or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you have questions for me regarding today's program or questions for Dr. Hianacho, you can uh, get them to me uh, at info at alessimd.com. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.
This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.